This podcast is offered by Wildflowers and Sangha. A Dharma Talk by Roshi Amy to SLA Hollowell. Bom dia. So it's raining again. Uh, this morning there was beautiful sun. Uh, now there's rain. And when there was the, the sun this morning, I remembered what I said last night about what our project was here this weekend about Rohatsu and what is <clears throat> Rohatsu celebrates the Buddha's awakening and what does that mean for us? What is awakening? How does that apply to me? And I saw the sun this morning and I said, what a wonderful day for awakening, to wake up. And then it started raining. And I thought, what a wonderful day to wake up. Um, so, what is, what are we talking about? Uh, when we're talking about awakening, enlightenment, I'm using those words interchangeably. Uh, what do we mean when we talk about the Buddha's awakening, enlightenment, and how does that apply to us? Um, and I've been thinking about that a koan in relation to that. Um, let me be sure I get the words right, so I wrote it down. Those of you who work on koans know that I am very demanding. It has to be the words exactly, right? No kind of, oh yeah, kind of, he kind of did this, and he kind of, and then, yeah, I think it was like that. No, it has to be word for word. So... I did the same thing by writing it word for word. So this is a koan from a collection that we call the Blue Cliff Record from China. Um, most of the koans are from the 8th century, which was the golden age of Zen, we say. And this is case number nine. Joshu's Four Gates. That's the title of the koan. Joshu's Four Gates. Joshu is a famous master in Zen lineages. We'll talk about him more after. A monk asked Joshu, What is Joshu? Joshu said, East Gate, West Gate, South Gate, North Gate. That's it. Don't worry if you're confused, okay? In fact, it's better if you are confused. 
Joshu being a great master, I said, uh, who uh, we have many, many koans like this with Joshu. There's a whole book called The Recorded Sayings of Joshu. Uh, he figures in the first koan that we use in our practice. Um, and he appears throughout many, many koans and many stories. He had a very long life. Some people say he was 120 when he died. He stayed with his own teacher for about 50 years. And when his own teacher died, he went off and he had already been recognized as a teacher himself by his teacher, but he stayed with him. And then after his teacher died, he went off and (coughs) wandered around and eventually settled in a place Uh, near a town that was, the name was Joshu. And that's how he became known as Joshu. I forget what his Chinese name was before that. Uh, And at some point there's this story of his four gates. So gates are something that we enter through, right? In ancient towns, and maybe not so ancient towns, (coughs) there were gates to enter the city, the towns. And in Chinese, sorry, I have something in my throat. In Chinese (coughs) towns at the time, they would have an east gate, a west gate, a north gate, a south gate. Maybe in Portuguese towns they had that as well, I don't know. In Paris, we still have those gates. We call them portes. And they they still have the names that they used to have. Of course, they don't look like a gate in the same way. They don't open and close. But there's usually a big, round, we call that a, I guess you would call it a roundabout in English, I think we call it. And um, so we have the Porte de Montreuil, the Porte de Clignancourt, the Porte Saint-Denis, the Porte d'Orléans, Porte Porte Maillot, all of these big gates, and they're huge intersections, and you still come into the city by those places. So Joshu is saying, when he's asked, what is Joshu? He answers with these four gates. Um, <clears throat> what are those gates? What does he mean by that? Um, what is the entry? What is the, or what is the way that we go in and out? Right? It's not just entry because we also leave by a gate. We come in the door, but we always go out the door. We also go out the door. By going out the door, we're actually going in somewhere else, though. So we could say gates are always for entering. For entering. Um, And 
And then we could even say, because there's a famous collection of koans, which is called the Mumankan, the first koan in it is Mu, which involves Joshu. And that title, the, we call it, uh, in English, we call it the, the title of the collection, the Gateless Gate. I'm not sure how you would say that in Portuguese. It's like the, right, yeah. Um, so that's another koan, right? The gateless gate. A gate that isn't a gate, in fact. Because, in fact, if we look at from the absolute point of view, there is no inside and outside, there is no gate, there is no coming and going. We won't go there today. But that's just something to keep in mind as well. So, the sun has returned. What a wonderful day to wake up. The rain will return. What a wonderful day to wake up. The rain and the sun are wonderful gates. The sun comes up in the east, the east gate. The sun sets in the west, the west gate. The south, the sun is very hot. South gate. In the north, it's colder. It's not as bright. North gate. All of each of those gates, each of those suns, let's say, each of those directions, uh, what a wonderful gate to wake up. Now, the east, usually in the ancient Chinese system, the gates uh, were based on the four cardinal points. And then, and maybe even in Paris or, or other cities, I don't know, maybe they did that originally, and then they added others. Usually it had to do with the road that was the most prominent road, would be the most prominent gate, and then there would be others. Um, and in fact, there is no, for ourselves, There is no gate more important than another for entering into who we truly are. The gates are limitless. The gates of awakening are limitless. So let's come to what are we talking about when we say awakening and enlightenment. And as I said, I'm using those words interchangeably. I tend to prefer awakening. However, enlightenment is acceptable as well. <laughs> um, so when the Buddha sat down, well, let's begin. The Buddha goes off. He's unhappy with his life as it is. He leads a very comfortable lifestyle. His father is, according to the versions, um, a local clan leader, a king. In any case, he's an important person, his father. 
and his son is being groomed to replace him, fill that role once his father is no longer there. Um, and so he lives in great comfort, probably relative comfort compared to what we live in today, but who knows. Um, and he's been protected from the rain, <laughs> the sun, um, sickness, old age, death. Um, he didn't have to encounter any of those things. Until one day he goes out of his usual environment and does see it. He does encounter it. He does see a sick person. He does see an old person. And he does see a dead person. And he's struck by those three things. And he sees the suffering that is involved with that. And he feels the suffering himself that arises when he sees that. And he doesn't understand it. And he goes back and he sees where he lives in this comfort that is denying all of that, or that is keeping all of that away, and he's even more confused. So he leaves. He actually leaves his wife and his child um, and goes off to try to understand this. He tries any number of things, many different techniques and practices, all of them in one way or another involving, let's say, a kind of denial. So if I take the comforts away, if I become strong, um, if I don't feed those desires by abstaining from indulging in those, whatever the comforts were. It could be in physical, it could be um, food, it could be sex, it could be intoxicating alcohol or something, um, it could be in uh, nice clothing, um, anything. Accumulating possessions. And he realizes that none of those things will protect him from the discomfort, the suffering, the unhappiness, the pain. And so he tries these practices with other people that tries to, okay, I won't indulge in any of those things. But the pain and the suffering and the unhappiness are still there. And he realizes that by starving himself, <laughs> by abandoning all his beautiful clothing, by withdrawing from society, not having women, not having song and dance. The suffering and the pain and the desire, all of it is still there. And he doesn't understand. So he decides to leave his comrades and goes off. And sits down on his own and says, I will sit here until I figure it out. And meditates like we do here. That's why we do what we do here. We're doing the same thing by coming here. That's why this applies to us this weekend. And for those of you who weren't here last night when I introduced this, it, this actually is not Rohatsu weekend. 
Rohatsu is a traditional Japanese Zen celebration, which is December 8th. But I decided it would be this weekend because we're here this weekend. So we're playing with the dates a bit, but um, I wanted us to do this together. In Paris, we will be having a weekend, and in Lisbon, they will be having a, a day, but some of you won't be there. So, um, so uh, and Rohatsu is a celebration of the Buddha's enlightenment, supposedly on December 8th that he had his awakening. So he goes to sit, and that's what we do. We withdraw from all of our usual patterns, our usual life, our usual activities, like he did. And we sit, and we just see what arises. And a lot comes up. So in his case, the legend is he was tempted by Mara, who is this dark archetype in the Buddhist iconography, um, <clears throat> who tempts him with all of his own dark thoughts and patterns, um, tempts him with all kinds of desires that he might have, does have, <clears throat> beautiful women, song, power, um, fame, possessions, all kinds of things. And he resists. He acknowledges it, but he doesn't go there. And at one point, Marak says, you know, I have legions, and he, you know, manifests the legions of beings and people who are witnesses to Mara's power. Most of humanity, right? <laughs> um, most of us. And challenges the Buddha and says, who are you? Who are you to go against all of these witnesses? Who are your witnesses? Who do you have here? And the Buddha, he's sitting in the meditation posture, and he takes one of his, his right hand, and he points to the ground, he points to the earth, and he says, the earth is my witness. This, here, now, is my witness. And this has become a famous, you see Buddha statues like this, pointing to the earth. The earth is my witness. And following that, he looks up in the sky, sees the morning star, and we all live happily ever after. <laughs> That's his moment of awakening. And in that awakening, what, what did, why do we call that awakening? He awakens to things as they are, let's say. He awakens to the absolute reality of impermanence, interconnection, and says, how wonderful, how wonderful, what a wonderful day. 
all beings everywhere throughout space and time are simultaneously awakened. Because what he sees in this impermanence and this interdependence is we are all one. There's no separation. This is the absolute view of, I said, there's no inside-outside. We make a construction and we build a building and put up walls and a door to create the inside and the outside. It's necessary. But ultimately, from the ultimate point of view, there isn't. And this is what he sees in his awakening. And he sees, therefore, he then develops this, he sees what is the origin of all of our problems. What's the root of it? Is all of these separations that we create. All of our grasping for something else. Not seeing just this, the earth is my witness. This is it. There's nothing else that needs to be realized but this. So he sees the origin of that, is believing something else. So we believe in this, just me. And we, don't see, and we have this identity of I, who we think we are. And then we project, and we see the other, and we have this projection identity of who we think the other is. And we, in order to maintain that I, we grasp, we have to, because that, that I cannot be maintained otherwise. We have to fix it, because the, tr the, the ultimate I is impermanent, not fixed. But in order to maintain this permanent I that we believe in, we have to make all kinds of constructions and hold on to things that we can't hold on to, because nothing is fixed. Therefore, we suffer. So we don't want to die. We don't want to face our death. So we deny it. We do all kinds of tactics to not die. I mean, literally not die, but also not die in a thousand million ways. We want to be recognized. We want to be seen. We want to be... Uh, um, we want to be the best, we want to have power. Um, all of these are tactics so that we won't die. Um, we don't want to be sick, we don't want to be old, we don't want to change. We want things always to be the same, unless we don't like them and then we want them to change. And not liking them and wanting them to change is another version of not just being with what is, not letting things be as they are. We want people to be different than they are. We want our life to be different than it is. We want it to be sunny when it's raining. We want it to rain when it's sunny. Um, we want to be in the south when we're in the north. We want to be in the north when we're in the south. <laughs> We want sunrise when it's sundown. We want sundown when it's sunrise. Um, always something else. So this is what the Buddha's awakening was. Seeing the oneness of life. And then seeing what all of the implications of that are.
And that's, that's our task here. That's what we're doing here. Um, so how can we How can we acknowledge what the different gates are in us? So some people, some people here may be sitting with uh, a deep appreciation for birth. They're expecting a child, or they have a small child, or they're raising children. Some people here may be sitting with a deep connection with death. They've lost a loved one recently. Some may be sitting here with sickness. They have someone close to them who is ill. They may be ill themselves. Some may be sitting here with joy because they've started a new relationship, um, a new job, new perspectives have opened. Things feel really positive. Some may be facing some really difficult thing. They lost their job. They don't like their job. Their relationship is not satisfactory. Um, There's some complication. Their parents are old and they're trying to take care of them. Um, Any number of things. Their car broke down. Um, They lost their favorite pair of shoes. I don't know any number of things. So without judging these things as being good or bad, positive or negative, can we see them as all gates? They are all gates to awakening. Every single one of them. And how do we do that? And what does it take for us to be able to appreciate that? as gates. Um, uh, Last weekend, um, Joa and I were in a training, a, a workshop, um, around uh, talking circles, you know, the circle that we do every during our retreats. Um, and it was a training program, but it was, um, it had nothing to do with Zen. Uh, it had nothing even to do with spiritual practice. There were people there like us who did have spiritual practices and applied that practice within their spiritual practices. But there were also people who, who do it in prisons. There were people who do it uh, in hospitals, in, um, for social, people who work with homeless people, um, people who work with refugees and with refugees uh, and with homeless people. Um, someone who talked about how it had been used in a school, different ways. And the guy who was training us 
who is leading the workshop, is, is a leader of this practice in the US and has done a lot to really foster it, and showed us a film in which he had brought together, he, he does this in the Los Angeles Police Department with the police method. So the, he first did a test project for six months with volunteers, volunteer policemen who wanted to participate. The same thing we do, right? With the same intentions of listening from your heart, talking from your heart, speaking spontaneously, and speaking briefly. Same rules, same thing with an object, the whole thing. Without any meditation before and without any uh, chant at the end like we do. And first he did this for six months with volunteers and then the, the police chief of the Los Angeles Police Department saw what a positive thing had happened from this group and asked him to do it for the entire department. And he got a grant and he's now doing it for the entire Los Angeles Police Department on a volunteer basis, but the police who do it, they get advantages, like they get an extra day off um, or things like that. And um, so then he brought together, he also does this in prisons and with social activists. So he brought together kind of a super circle of volunteers from the police circles, volunteers from the prison circles, and volunteers from the social activist circles to a super circle for a whole day. And he made a film of this. He filmed it. I mean, there were filmmakers filming it. And they were all stunned, the, the participants. You know, inmates from the prison really had no empathy to start with for the policemen. And the policemen didn't really have much empathy for the for the inmates who were like tough gang members and all kinds of things like that. Um, the social activists were more on the inmates side. They were really skeptical about the police as well. You also had black people, you had women, you had men, you had uh, Mexicans, Native Americans, all whole mix. And they ended up by actually seeing, hearing what they shared. The inmates were totally blown away when the policemen started talking about this bunny that his family owns. A rabbit, right? A bunny. It's like this really cute little thing. And he, started, he said, yeah, we have this bunny and it's called basil, but actually I started calling it bun-bun, which is like this thing like children do, you know? And the inmates were just, they couldn't believe that here was this policeman who has a rabbit that he calls bun-bun. You know, they had no idea. And one of the police women, a black woman, and one of the former inmates, he was now a former inmate, but works in the circles, um, realized that they both had grown up in almost identical circumstances. They both had come, their parents were teenagers, so like they had mothers who were like 15, 
when they had them. Their parents were both gang members in really tough, tough South Central Los Angeles. And their parents were both involved with drugs. The policewoman's mother had died at the age of 30 of a heroin overdose. The gang, mem the, the gang member's father, I forget what it was, but was deeply involved in the gangs. And so the inmate had followed the path of become, just followed what his family did, became a gang member, but then had been transformed in prison through these circles. The policewoman had gone the other way. She decided she did not want to go the route of the gangs. She wanted to do what she could to stop that behavior. So she joined the police force. And she had been in the police for 25 years or something. And here they were meeting each other, realizing they came from the same place. And they had made different choices, but they shared the same experiences. And here they were now, together in this talking from the heart and listening from the heart. In order to do that, they had to let go of their ideas about themselves and their ideas about the other. And you know, when we do the circle, that's what we say to you, you know, listen from your heart. That means put aside your judgments, put aside your ideas, projections, just listen, just listen openly. And the same thing when you talk, put aside what your big story that you want to tell, your big brilliant discourse, um, put aside your judgments of whether it's good or bad what you're saying, just speak from your heart and let it be. And we see what happens. This is what awakening is about. Putting aside what you think, you know, about um, the quality of the sunlight. Put aside your preference for sun over rain. Um, put aside if you think you're sitting really well or not. Um, put aside your judgments about, oh, I don't like to eat an Oriyoki. Recognize that you have that preference, but try not to go into it. Just sit. Just sit and see what comes up. Because ultimately, as we say, everything is neutral. We put all kinds of things onto it. We judge things, but it's neutral, actually. And in that way, we can see everything as a gate. Whatever arises is material for your awakening. To see into it, look into it, whatever it is. If you see you have this urge to go talk to someone here, look at it and say, what is that about? Why do I need to talk to someone? You may really need to, you know, you have an issue with your toilet that's broken and you need to talk to Nuno so he can go talk to the ladies. But apart from that kind of thing, 
Why do you need to talk? And that can be a portal, a, uh, a gate. You know, that's an entrance into what is this all about? What is talking? Who am I? Who wants to talk? You're not who you think you are. That's another thing these guys, in, these people in, the, in one of these films from this guy, from councils, from circles, is I watched another of the films and the guy said, one of the inmates said, you know, that guy who was doing all that stuff in the gangs, shooting people and robbing and drugs, I'm not, that's not who I am. I'm not that. And he discovered that by doing these circle practices. These guys, they don't do meditation. I mean, maybe some of them do. They've been introduced to it in prison. I don't know. <clears throat> so it's not just meditation that's a gate. And it's not just happiness or sadness or difficulty that's a gate. Boredom is a gate. Um, Going to work is a gate. Working on a project with your colleagues is a gate. Um, putting your children to sleep at night is a gate. Everything's a gate. Fixing the car. Um, The, the Zen master, the Japanese Zen master Dogen, in his instructions to the person who's cooking in the Zendo, um, said um, something to the effect of, um, you have these vegetables, make a temple from these vegetables. The vegetables are a temple already, but with them, make a temple. The vegetables are a gate. The cooking is a gate. Eating is a gate. And that's what, uh, so that's what I'm asking you to do here these two days. As a, as a recognition of and a um, continuation of the Buddha's awakening. He, he pointed out when he said, how wonderful, how wonderful, that all of us already are awake, but we just don't realize it. It's clouded over, clouded with so many, we're asleep with so much other stuff has put us to sleep that we don't realize it. But we are already awake. So the cooks have gone off to do their work at that gate. Um, those of you who cleaned the toilets this morning, 
gate, the toilet gate. <laughs> it's really interesting, you know, that the, in the United States, we had this original scandal called Watergate, right? <laughs> Which had nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But it does, and it, it, that was just happened to be the name of the building where the break-in occurred that gave its name to the scandal, right? But so now anytime there's a scandal, we say it's, you know, then in, in the 80s we had Iran-Contra-Gate, and there have been other ones, right? I mean, I don't know, maybe this one will become Ukraine-Gate or something, I don't know. Um, but how funny, huh? Because they are gates. They are gates. How do you say gate in, in Porte, you would say? You don't have another name? Okay. And in French, what would we say? Portail? Portail? Gate, I mean, I think it's portail. Yeah, I mean, porto, porto. Um, so it'd be interesting to look at what is the difference between a gate and a door. Um, <laughs> there's, those of you who know me, there's always a Joyce referenced here. Um, <laughs> he, in, in one of the and one of the characters, Stephen Dedalus, is when he, in his monologue, his interior monologue, he says something to the effect of, um, if you can put your five fingers through, it's a gate. Otherwise, it's a door. Um, and some people think of it as just, oh yes, well, a door is solid like that. And a, a gate, like to a to a garden or something, has you know spaces in it, right? It's kind of do you know what I mean? It's, it's open. Kind of. um, I tend to think that Joyce was far deeper than that, and that it had something to do with what we're saying. You, in order to find that it's not a door, you have to go completely into it. And when you do, it's not a door. Physical pain is it also a door? Is it? Physical pain is it a gate? Everything. Yep. Everything. Anything, anything you can think of is a gate. Everything is a gate. Our our life is a gate. In fact, life gate. Um and then every aspect of our lives is a gate. So Joshu limited it to east, wait, east gate, west gate, north gate, south gate, as an indication of just that all of them are entries. You know, it's all entries. You know, maybe Christ could have said Lion's Gate, Damascus Gate, uh, different gates in Jerusalem. I don't know, but. Um, But in order to experience them as a gate, you have to 
You have to enter. You have to go there. And that's not always easy when it's something difficult, physical pain, you know. You don't want to go there. And that's exactly what then causes the suffering, is we resist the pain. It's the resistance that causes the suffering. And I always tell the story of my own experience with that when I was giving birth to my second child. With no, I didn't want any epidural or anything. I wanted just natural childbirth. And it was intense. Extreme, never felt anything like that. And my teacher was there. I had asked my teacher. My husband was there and my teacher. And I asked her to be there for the birth. And between contractions, which were like super intense contractions, um, she said to me, go in the same direction as the pain. And because I was, because it was her, and because I was, it was such an extreme experience, and I was lucid between the contractions, and I, I heard it. And so I did that. And actually, all I did was no longer resist it, no longer fight it, because it was so intense, I thought I would be overwhelmed and would have no possibility of uh, that I was going to disappear or something in the pain. I wasn't thinking that logically or consciously, but I think it was something like that. And as soon as I did that, it wasn't that there was no pain, but there was no suffering. Changed radically because I'd been trying to contain it, like keep it here, not let it. But as soon as I gave it space and allowed it to overcome me, and I became one with it, wow! Completely transformed experience. I don't know if any other mothers here have had similar experience. At some point, you just got to let go, right? But you know, you have no choice, and you want to actually, but you don't. You know. <laughs> But you don't have the option because that life force is so powerful that it comes, fortunately. Um, But we can do the same thing with any kind of pain. I've done it with sinus headaches. I realized that when I would have a sinus problem, a lot of the suffering came from trying to resist it, contain it, you know, trying to keep it limited. So that's what I mean by you have to enter. You have to go into it and become it. It's not easy, always. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But the more you do that, the more you trust that that's the way to go. But that's where freedom is, that's where relaxation is, that's where ease is, that's where you can be in the middle of a storm and still be present.
that's how you can best accompany someone in a difficult circumstance by just being present. Um, I realized recently that someone had written me an email and told me about, it was actually my sister, and had told me about uh, a serious diagnosis, health diagnosis that her husband had received, my brother-in-law. And this was probably two months ago. And I went to write her an email the day before I left to come here. And I realized I had never responded to that email. And I felt terrible. Because I was really, when I received the email, I was really devastated too by the diagnosis. And I didn't answer. And I, so I thought, what was going on? I always, I mean, really, I really try to answer emails and right away because otherwise I, I get lost. And I looked and I said, you know, I think unconsciously because it was so troubling, the email, I said, I'm not going to answer it right away. Or I just, I, I forgot, but I probably unconsciously I forgot because I didn't want to. I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to answer it. Um, so I right away wrote her an email and told her all of that. Um, so it's not like you encounter something once, a gate, and go through it, and that's it forever. No. It's an ongoing practice. And actually, so what do I mean? So that case, okay, look at that case with my sister. So I encountered this gate the first time when she tells me this bad news about her husband. And I didn't go through it. It was a door. I left it closed. I didn't enter. And then, fortunately, it came back to me. And this time I went into it. I opened it and I went in. And it changed everything. It changed then I could ease, more easily write about it, say to her something. Um, I, by fully acknowledging what I had done by not answering, also made it much easier. I wasn't caught up in, of course, I told her I felt terrible and that I was sorry. But I didn't get caught up in that and judge myself and say, I'm terrible that I did that. And, I'm worthless, or become defensive. You know, why did she tell me this in an email? She should have called me and told me this, or whatever. No. Um, why did she bury it at the end of the email? Because she did <laughs> bury it at the end of the email. Um, I didn't. I just I went in the gate and I looked and I became one with the situation as it was. Do you have an example? Yeah. 
seeing something like that conflict in some of our cases. So it's it's I know it's a little bit different from what you said, but my impression is sometimes that when you have a feeling that uh, if you open a door and that can lead you to some kind of help, for instance, or some kind of confrontation. Well, I would you think it's better. I would say you know the gate is even um, so. Then the gate is your uh, how you react to the situation. So. You encounter this conflict and you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't go there. So then that maybe I shouldn't go there is the gate. So you look at maybe I shouldn't go there. And what does that mean? And why am I feeling that way? And um, what is the best thing to do? Is it better to, maybe I'm right to not go there. But maybe I'm fleeing conflict because I'm afraid of how I'll be seen or be judged or hurting the person. I don't, I don't know what the situation is, but so then that's the gate. It's not necessarily the conflict that's the gate, but it's how you are, what's coming up for you around that, that's the gate. And, one, and then you have a better chance of knowing if it's appropriate to face the conflict or not. I mean, to go into the conflict or not. Maybe it is appropriate to not. Maybe it's not the right moment. Maybe it's not worth it. I mean, in the long run, in, in order to have a healthy, full, um, harmonious situation, it might be you need to go to the conflict, but it might be that you don't. <coughs> it depends. The gate is, is the answer to the situation. The gate is a sort of answer. The gate's the question. <laughs> yeah, it's the question. Well, Maybe we can stop there. What time is it? It's 12 to 5 p.m. No other questions? Comments? The gate just came to my mind all this because I don't think Well, so then we come to this ultimate point of view, which is, you know, there is no gate. <laughs> and where does it, the gate begin and the end? And end. So where is the gate? Where is the passage? Where is the opening? Where is the closing? Where is the entering? Where is the leaving? All of that. You know. So we could say, yes, passing passage is a gate. But so is entering. That happens to me that anything that appeared in front of me in my life kind of 
the situation, it's very easy to take it as a question. Mm. Well, then maybe don't formulate it like that. Like, everything that appears to you is a gate, even if it's not a question. You know? That was a specific response to, to Eduardo's, Jose Eduardo's thing. And I mean, the question is really appropriate in the sense of that brings us to the place of not knowing. Because as soon as we say, oh, I don't have a question about that, I know. No. There's not a lot of openness there then. Um, We have an example. So all those years, all those years of questioning allowed you to come to that realization. All of those years of questioning allowed you to come to this realization. That was the passage, all of those years. Too many, not enough, those are relative terms. You know, those Looks very simple. Yeah. Yeah. You can even understand that in other situations there are still that there are always every day in our lives. Probably we can have another attitude to that passage can be more probably more easy or not to take so mm -hmm. much time or that process than that feeling. I bring you back to this notion of that much time, that long, it's neither fast nor slow. It's just what it is. Um, and the notion of uh, easy or difficult, that those two are relative terms, but it's true that um, maybe we become more familiar with it, we become more aware. Uh, the more we practice, the more we can, the clouds disperse, you know, and we see more clearly things. Not all the time. <laughs> um, and we see those things in ourselves. We become more aware of patterns, things that we're doing. Um, you know, I mean, was it lo a long time that I waited two months to answer my sister's email? Yeah. It was. On the other hand, 
if I had waited one month, would that have been, you know, I, there's no, you can't really judge. It took me that long to come to it. You know? It took me that long. And it's not fast or slow. It's always now, so. When, you know, when the Buddha has this, the earth is my witness, this I use as to say, this is the throne of enlightenment, where you are right now, that's, that's where awakening is hap- will happen, does happen, and will happen. It can't happen anywhere else. It's where you are. You are sitting on the throne of awakening. You are sitting on the throne of awakening. Throne, how do you say that in Portuguese? Same word? Oh, okay. Okay, um, so this word suffering. Um, I'm making a distinction between pain and suffering. Pain is unavoidable. You know, child, childbirth, it's unavoidable because the body, it's just the, that's what's happening and the body has to like open and there's contractions and it's kind of, it's natural, but it, the body's not usually doing that, right? So women have only a few times in life, right? And um, so there's pain. The suffering, though, is what's added. So I, before I had this experience of not resisting it, I was suffering from that pain. But when I was no longer resisting it, I wasn't suffering anymore. I was still experiencing the pain, but I wasn't suffering. And, you know, so... It's painful when we lose a loved one. You know, when you lose a loved one, someone you love dies or leaves you or is hurt or something. It's painful. Um, But then if we can use that as a gate and go into it instead of shutting the door and trying to fight the pain in one way or another, we will, the suffering it's not the same. So. 
So I get really tired. And I'm looking again at the map, and again, so you have to tell them where to go. And I was thinking about that because it's like feeding your arms, it, feeding your body <laughs> has that tendency without your brain input to go, oh, I don't want it. <laughs> and yeah. it's so hard because that sends us into your body and giving your brain, no, no, back off. Right. That's a good example, actually. Yeah. Because that is the kind of thing that is, um, I mean, it's not a habit that your body has, but it's something that is, is beyond you, like saying, let's do this, you know, yeah. or not. And usually, like that, a lot of the, the constructions that we have and the defenses that we have in place are for this, a similar reason, to protect us, you know, to help us. Originally, they were. Um, but at, we have to let go of them at some point because we don't need them anymore, you know. Um, it's the same old story, but the story isn't true anymore, you know, or something like that. Uh, what? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so can we look at all of these things and see them as gates for awakening? Instead of all of these, we're, we're only talking about bad things here, right? <laughs> it was bringing up examples of negative things, but, you know, it can be like fabulous joy, too. It can be, what? Absolutely. You know, that's like unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, anything, you know, flying a kite. Uh, can all be, what a wonderful gate for awakening. Came, you know, this moment, 
this is this joy, you know, this, this this complete free joy. You know, mm. which is so 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 big. Mm. And joke gate, right? Yeah, can we can we liberate joy like we liberate pain? Can we go in the direction of the joy instead of resisting it, containing it? Because we don't think we want to contain the joy, but we do, by habit, you know. We don't want to let it take over, or, or we judge ourselves. We say, oh, I should, okay. It was funny, but it wasn't that funny, you know. Or I'm, this is the kind of stuff we do, without even thinking about it, you know. Okay, the servers now have gone, so it must really be almost lunchtime. Is it? Okay. So let's put the room back in place. Don't leave before that. We'll do a fast kin-in until we're sure that the food is ready. So you can leave during the fast walking, but not before. <laughs>